0: I finished preaching a couple of Sundays ago and came home and my mother-in-law said to me, that was brave. It's not often you get that comment as a preacher, is it? Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd actually finished uh, five sermons on money and uh, we'd done a mini-series and actually uh, Kevin Martin then did a- another one each, so it's been a seven-week look at the whole issue um, and obviously that particular morning the sermon had been a bit of a challenge and uh, I was thought I was brave. Anyway, I'm going to be brave again, it's not often I'm brave, but I'm going to re-preach that sermon and we're going to look at the whole issue of uh, finance, wealth, money, um, and we're going to cover the whole Bible, uh, so I hope you're ready for a bit of a seatbelt ride uh, as, we, as we go through, but let's ask God's help now as we, as we come to his word. Father, we don't want what we've just sung to be mere nice words that we've sung in a well-known hymn, Father, we, we, we want you to speak now, we, we need you to speak now. Uh, Father, we believe that the Bible is your word. We believe that your spirit is speaking through it. And, uh, Father, we want to hear your voice now. And, uh, Father, sometimes that message is really encouraging. Sometimes it's really challenging. Father, we we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to hear what we need to hear, what's being said. Grant us understanding. Grant us responsive hearts. uh, And be gracious to us this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, John Wesley, the well-known Methodist preacher, had just finished buying paintings for his room and he'd just finished hanging them all up uh, when the chambermaid came in uh, to do some jobs in his room, whatever she was coming to do. And it was a really cold winter's day and he noticed that she had this really thin linen gown on. And so he reached for his pocket to give her some money to buy a new coat and realised that actually he didn't have any money because he just spent it all on paintings. Uh, and it really struck him at that moment that God was not pleased with how he'd spent his money. Uh, this is what he said. Uh, will your master say, well done, good and faithful steward? You have adorned your walls with the money that might have protected this poor creature from the cold. Are not these pictures the blood of this poor maid? It really stuck in his mind, obviously. I'm not sure whether that was what changed his practice. But in 1731, he decided that he was going to begin to limit his expenses so that uh, he would have more money to give to the poor. So in 1731, he uh, earned £30 income. And he needed £28 to provide for himself and his family. He gave £2 away. The following year, his income doubled. But he still lived on £28, and so he gave £32 away. In the third year, his income jumped to £90, and he still lived on £28, so he gave £62 away. And the fourth year, he made £120. He still lived on £28, and he gave £92 to the poor. And Wesley preached that, that Christians shouldn't merely tithe... But actually, they should give away any extra income once the family and the creditors were satisfied, taken care of. And he believed that with increasing income, the Christian's standard of giving should increase, not their standard of living. With increased income, the Christian's standard of giving ought to increase, not their standard of living. And even when his income rose into the thousands of pounds, he lived simply and quickly gave away his surplus money. One year his income was slightly over £1,400 and he lived off £30 and gave the rest away. He was really concerned about laying up treasures on earth and so actually he made sure that when money came in it went out very quickly and he reports that he never had more than £100 on him at any time uh, in terms of of that. When he died in 1791 the only money mentioned in his will were a few coins in his pockets uh, and in his drawers at home and uh, uh, he said himself I cannot help leaving my books behind me whenever God calls me home. But in every other respect, my own hands will be my executors. It's got a radical story, isn't it? Is it biblical? And what should we think? And that's what we're going to think about this evening. Uh, so the first thing I want you to notice is that we have a generous God. You need to come back right to the beginning, to Genesis uh, and to the garden. Uh, Genesis chapter 2 and verses 8 to 9. As, as God is creating the world in which we now live... And we're having this description of the, the garden he planted. Just notice it says there, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. God didn't say, you need some fresh fruit, so I'll give you one tree. And, and that will sustain. no, he, he makes all these different kinds. Of, and they're pleasing to so eye, they're, they're attractive and wow, they're beautiful and, and they're good for food. And later in chapter 2 and verses 15 to 17, when he, when he puts Adam in the garden, he says to, to, says to him, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. There's one you mustn't eat from, but any of the others. All this plethora of, of, of different trees, feel free to help yourselves. We have a, a generous God. I want you to enjoy all of this, says the Lord. I want you to submit to my word, recognise that I'm still God, and, and therefore there's one tree you mustn't touch. But everything else, enjoy Enjoy it all. Now I think we need to hear that, don't we? Because too often, as Christians, we've got this kind of subtle voice in our head that's saying that, that, that what God is really saying is you shouldn't enjoy that and you shouldn't do that and you shouldn't touch that. And, uh, and there's almost this idea that, God, that God's kind of killed you watching out and we're kind of under the spotlight all the time. And, and actually, as creation begins, God says, I want you to enjoy these good things. And, and, and Paul in 1 Timothy 4 has to tackle those sorts of preachers who are, don't touch this and don't touch that and don't do that. When he says, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God has created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving because it's consecrated by the word of God in prayer. Paul Paul is saying, we've got so much that we can enjoy. And we we shouldn't be sort of going around, we can't have that, we can't have that. No, actually, enjoy it. Thank thank God for it. We are really blessed, aren't we? I mean, I, I get mesmerised going into the supermarkets these days. There's so much. You know, what, what do you buy? You, know, you, you don't just go looking for apples. So you've got loads, all these. Right, which one is am I going to have? What? You know, uh, and God's intention is very clear in giving this world to us. He's, he's a generous God, isn't he? He's given us so much to richly enjoy. It's for our good, and it's for our enjoyment within the limits of His rule. But He's a generous God, and, and the God who made the world hasn't changed. Scripture tells us God doesn't change. He's still a generous God. He still loves to lavish good gifts on us, and he wants us to enjoy those good gifts with thanksgiving. So we shouldn't be shy of of, of recognising that God is a generous God. He loves to bless us, and he's given us so much to enjoy. So that's the the starting place we need to think about. We have a generous God. The second is when you think about the Old Testament a bit more, I want you to notice Jubilee and Judgment. Uh, In January, we started reading the Bible together as a church, and so we have a set passage for the day, and it's going to take us three years, and we've just travelled through Leviticus. Um, We're still talking to each other, and uh, we've survived. Uh, It was a bit of a challenge. But as you read through Leviticus, you come to chapter 25, and and there's this really strange concept of the year of Jubilee. Now, now the basic principle is this. Back in in Numbers, in chapter 26, God says, I'm giving you this land, this inheritance that Do you remember how it's described? It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is this generous God again, giving them a good land. And and he says, if you're a big tribe, I want you to have a big patch. And if you're a smaller tribe, you get a smaller patch. Because actually, I want you all to have a a fair-sized patch. God is generously giving to everybody. But but as they're given their their own territory and their own sort of family uh, uh, plot, as time goes on, all sorts of things can come in and, and, and rob them of that, can't they? So... It may be that, that you know the husband of a family has an accident and, it, and becomes disabled and, and isn't able to work the land, and, and therefore they can't provide for themselves. And, and so actually, their land can be kind of purchased by someone else, and the money's given to them to help them survive, but, but they've lost that connection with their land. It, so it might be misfortune, it might be mistake. Someone just buys a bad crop of seeds, and, and they're working hard, but it doesn't grow. And, and because of the misfortune, the mistake, then, they kind of lose their property a little bit. It might just be foolishness or laziness, you know, that the parents just can't bother to work. And and so they don't bother harvesting the land. And and so the family suffers. And at this point, some people are getting richer and some people are getting poorer. But there's this wonderful reset button. You discover the reset button on sort of electronic equipment. It's great, isn't it? The whole thing just gets fouled up. You hit that button and it all resets. And and that's what the year of Jubilee was. It was a case of, you know, some people have benefited over the last last few years. Some people have suffered. But now on this year of jubilee, everything gets reset. Everyone gets back to what they were given, so that everyone makes sure they've got their own plot. Every 50 years, everyone goes back to the original distribution. And what it means is the rich can't get richer and richer and richer, and the poor can't get poorer and poorer and poorer. If you've had an accident within the family, and, it, and it's caused a, a problem maybe for a couple of decades, now, now this reset, and the next generation get fresh chance to start again. If your parents were bone idle and didn't look after you and didn't provide for you, there's a reset button, there's, there's a chance for the family to start again. It's a, it's a wonderful provision. And, and Leviticus 25 makes it very clear why this is. God, God says, this is my land, you're my people. And I want you to enjoy it together. I don't, I don't want you taking advantage of each other, he says in verse 17. Um, He goes on to say, and the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. I, I've rescued you. You're, you're not to treat each other as servants and slaves, Versus. 41 and 42. Uh, no one should be like that. Actually, I, I, I've rescued, brought you to freedom, to, you are to enjoy this land. That, that's God's heart as he gives them the land. And as you read through the Old Testament, laws then, all the laws about material resources are really restrictions on making sure that, that, that no one is gaining more and more and, and others are, are losing out. It's almost as though, sometimes reads like this, doesn't it when you read the Old Testament, who are God's favourite people? It's, it's the widows and orphans and the foreigners, isn't it? God has a special heart for these people because they're the ones who can't provide for themselves. They're the ones who could be taken advantage of. And so there are lots of laws to to make sure that they're looked after and, and cared for. And so as God's people go into God's land, as this greatly blessed people, there's this wonderful provision to make sure they continue to be able to share it together. But as we know, as you read through the Old Testament, God's people stray from God as they follow other idols. But they also stray from God's heart in sharing the good things together. And so the kings begin to amass more and more wealth and collect wives and other things as well as as they're going on. And the rich begin to start cheating others and taking advantage of the weak and and the dispossessed. And, And actually there's this material inequality and injustice that grows. So that when you read through the prophets as they bring God's word to his people and they're challenging them about the way they live. Yes, their idolatry is spoken about regularly, but one of the expressions of that idolatry is the injustice that's going on. Let me just give you three quick examples. Ezekiel 22 verse 29. The people of the land practice extortion and commit robbery. They oppress the poor and needy and ill-treat the foreigner, denying them justice. Can can you get your head around this? God has blessed these people with the land. He's given them all a share in the inheritance and some of them are trying to steal from others. It's horrendous, isn't it? You've got your patch, but, but I want that one as well. In Micah chapter 2 and verse 2, the prophet says, They covered fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. People are sitting in the promised land. That's the people of God with their patch. And they're sitting thinking, I like his. Now, how can I get all of that? And what can I, oh, what a shame. The bloke's died. Ha <laughs> ha, I'm in. And God's people are sitting thinking like that. Uh, Amos chapter 5 and verses 11 to 12, he says, You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you've built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you've planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offences and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. And so the the major themes of the prophets are are this idolatry. You've turned away from the living God who rescued you to these other idols. But that's being expressed in this grabbing and this selfishness and this lack of care for others. And what we find then, isn't it, that that sadly material possessions are one of the primary reasons that that people actually turn away from God. The good gifts that he gives us become the very thing that, that turn our hearts away from him. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, it's the love of money. It's a root of all kinds of evil. And suddenly God then turfs his people out of the land. He throws them out of the the land of milk and honey. He throws them out of the land of inheritance because of their wickedness and their injustice. The system of Leviticus uh, Leviticus 25 was great. The year of Jubilee principle was wonderful. The, The laws were good laws. The problem was the people's hearts. The structure was in place. But people's hearts weren't, and so they, they looked for loopholes, and they, 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 they tried to grab as much as they could. And Here are these most people, most privileged people on the whole planet. God has rescued them from Egypt. They're his treasure possession. He's given them the land of promise. He's given them his presence. He's blessed them with a, a land full of milk and honey, and he's given them good laws to make sure that they all continue to enjoy it. And they've messed it all up. Completely screwed the whole thing up. And frankly, that's the kind of picture of a world we live in today, isn't it? A world where the rich are getting richer, and the poor are getting poorer, and it doesn't matter how much or how little we got, we're all looking to have a little bit more. And we don't care what it costs anyone else. And if God's people, in God's land, with God's laws, couldn't get it right, what hope is there for a world that doesn't acknowledge God, and doesn't want to follow his laws? So we have a generous God. We have this wonderful principle of jubilee to make sure everything's shared and, and then God's judgment because it isn't. So thirdly this evening, he became poor to make us rich. This is the hope, isn't it? In our spiritual poverty and bankruptcy for, because of our greed and selfishness, we deserve God's judgment. We deserve condemnation. We've got nothing to offer God but debt. We've got no merit of our own because of our selfishness. But this generous and good God sends his son and his son willingly leaves his riches in glory to enter our poverty. And that's what we read from 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, isn't it? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So, so different to his people of the Old Testament. The rich saw the poor as a means to get richer. Jesus, in his riches, steps down into our poverty to make us rich. I think it's worth, isn't it, just stopping on a regular basis and thinking about that step down. Thinking about the Son of God, mighty God, centre of the worship of angels in glory, in close communion with his Father, in purity and holiness and majesty, becoming a baby. That I just that still staggers me, incomprehensibly contracted to a span. It's just that's just staggering, isn't it? But but not just any baby. A, a baby that's born in poverty and in a sick and polluted world. And two Corinthians eight verse nine doesn't tell us that he became poor because to be poor is a much more spiritual thing to be. Because that's the lifestyle we ought to embrace. No, he came to be poor to rescue us from poverty. He came to make us rich. The good and generous God doesn't want people living without his blessing. He wants us to enjoy his good world. He wants us to enjoy the good things he's provided. And so Jesus willingly embraces our poverty. He experiences the worst of our worlds. We know that when his parents went to sacrifice at the temple at, at, at his birth, they bring pigeons because they don't have wealth for the, 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 the better sacrifices. That's God's kindness, wasn't it, in the Old Testament for the poorer people? Bring pigeons if you can't afford the, 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 the proper animals. Jesus must have grown up with social stigma. He was born before his, well, he was conceived before his parents were, were, were married. You can imagine what the rumours would have been in the village as he was growing up. Who's your dad, Jesus? He was a refugee. He had to they had to flee the country when he was born. No, no status, no no welfare system to welcome them. He came from the wrong region, didn't he? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. He had the wrong accent. He was from the wrong place. You know, he, he wasn't going to fit into society. His family didn't get him they, when he was out preaching. They, they wanted to bring him home. He was just embarrassing. Jesus, you lost the plot. Come on on. Come on. Come on, dear. Come back. The religious elite elite completely rejected him. In fact. Very early on, we read that they they want to kill him because they don't like what he's teaching, and he's put to death by the political powers. And Jesus embraced all of that to rescue us, not to uh, not to rescue us so that we can embrace poverty, but to make us rich, so that we could be co-heirs with him. Now, I just find that completely mind blowing. Jesus is the son of the Father. The universe belongs to him. And he leaves his riches in glory and enters our poverty in order to rescue us so that we can share the universe with him. So that we can be co-heirs. That, that is just mind-boggling, isn't it? That is just staggering. And, and how do we receive that rescue? How, how do we receive those riches? Well, the Bible calls us to turn and trust, repent and believe, t- turn away from our selfish, greedy, grabbing existence. Confess our sin to God and start following the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanking him for his death. Thanking him for embracing our poverty to make us rich. It's as simple as turning interesting. That's how we receive this wonderful rescue. So we have a good and a generous God who wants Jubilee to be in place to make sure that things are shared. But because of our humanity's greed and and grabbing, judgment comes upon his people. And so what hope is there for us? Because our hearts are just the same. Well, he became poor, he left his riches, he became poor to make us rich. Fourthly, if we're not like him, we're not his. If we're not like him, we're not his. Many have misunderstood the Christian message to to mean that, frankly, you can live as you like and just say sorry and you you get in. And it doesn't matter. And as long as you've had this kind of experience at some stage where you've kind of said sorry and felt something, you're in. And that's all you need. Now let's be clear, there is hope for terrible sinners on their deathbed to repent. We have the, the wonderful story of the thief on the cross who lived a wicked life. And at the last moment he turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. It is possible for wicked sinners to repent on their deathbed and receive glory. But we only to get one of those stories in the New Testament. To show us that there's hope, but not to bank on that hope. Actually, the call for each of us is today to turn and trust. To repent and believe. To start now living a very different life with Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. The Christian message is to turn from a life of selfishness, to trust in Jesus, and then to live like him. And the Bible is so clear on this that it has very tough words for those who claim to be followers of Jesus but then who don't live like him. Come with me to James chapter 2 and verses 14 to 17. Sorry, I've got the NIV in my notes, so it'll be slightly different to yours. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. James is saying, look, Jesus saw us in our poverty, and he didn't look down from heaven and say, oh, I'm sorry about that. I hope things work out well for you. No, he left his riches and entered our poverty to rescue us. So how can we claim to be trusting in Jesus... And following him, if we see others in need and we say, oh, I'm sorry, and then do nothing to help them. That's not faith. We don't have that relationship with Jesus. We're not, we're not saved by his grace and, and living in faith if we're living like that. That, that. That's a dead faith. 1 John 3, verses 17 and 18. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let's not love with words or speech, but with, with actions and in truth if you see others in need and you couldn't care less you don't you don't even stop to think about it says John there is something very very wrong because that's not our god and if we're claiming to receive his love and to be living in his love we won't be living like that actually it's it's a necessary sign of a life in the process of being redeemed is, is that there's a transformation in our Stewardship of the finances and money that God has given us. If we're not like him, we're not his. Can we just let that sink in for a moment? If, if I have no concern for the poor, materially and spiritually, how can I claim to be a Christian, a Christ-like one? Ouch. That, that strikes home, doesn't it? See, I I think in in the Christian West, we're very good at identifying moral sins. You know, the the, the sexual issues that we're really concerned about in our society. And those are terrible and we've got to to stand against those. And yet at the same time, we can turn a completely blind eye to issues of injustice and care and the poor and the needy. Now, we mustn't stop being concerned about those. But there's something very lopsided about our Christianity if we're not concerned for the poor and needy. Where does Jesus spend most of his ministry? Who does he spend most of his time with? If we're not like him, we're not his. So we have this wonderfully generous God who has a heart for this jubilee, this, this sharing out. Uh, his people, as they're called to follow him, uh, don't do that, and judgment comes, they're thrust out of the land. Well, if they can't do it, what hope is there for the rest of us? Well, the wonderful Saviour leaves his riches, enters our poverty to make us rich. And then if we're trusting in him, we're going to be like him. So, so, so what's the aim? What, what, should the, what should the New Testament church, what should our churches look like today? What difference does the gospel make to a community of God's people? Well, come with me to Acts chapter 4 and verses 32 to 34. Just two chapters earlier, perhaps a few days earlier, Peter has preached the first uh, post-resurrection sermon in that sense. Church church age has been initiated with the pouring out of the Spirit. What's the result here in chapter 4 verse 32? All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales. Now, this is not some sort of communism where everyone gave up everything, put it into a central pot, and then shared it out. Because actually people are, are seeing a need and saying, man, there's this family here, they've got nothing, they've lost everything, I've got all these extra fields and barns and houses and properties, and actually, if I sell that field, I can provide for them. It's not selling everything, but that particular field. What's going on here is this this generosity within the church family to make sure that I'm not sitting on loads while you haven't got anything. It's, it's actually to share it, to, to make sure there's no one needy in our church family. And and that's a, a kind of a flowing out of the gospel being proclaimed and, and lives being changed. and It just almost automatically happens in, in Acts chapter 4. That there's just this desire for this to be the case. It's almost the, the ideal of jubilee has become the reality within this church family hasn't it but actually we want to share the good things that god has given us to make sure there is no needy person within our fellowship that that would be a that would be a wonderful thing wouldn't it if every church family in the uk we could say there's no needy person amongst us because actually we share generously what god has given and we're looking out for each other and there's this warmth and this care But the New Testament shows us that it's not just within our own local church family, this kind of parochial view, that this generosity affects. And that's why I asked for 2 Corinthians chapter 8 to be read earlier. What's going on in 2 Corinthians chapter 8? Paul is writing to the Gentile Christians in, in what we now know as Greece. And he's encouraging them to give a gift to the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Now, There was a time when the Jewish Christians were spiritually wealthy and they sent out the apostles and supported them in their ministry to take the gospel to Europe. And out of their spiritual wealth, they they, they shared the gospel and these people have come to faith. And Paul is now saying, I want you to turn your plenty to to share with them in, in, in their needs. Listen to verses 13 to 15. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you're hard pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it's written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Paul is saying, in, in your financial um, uh, well-offness, that's not a correct term, is it? But in your, in your, in your, in your wealth, share with the, the Jewish Christians who, who are a long way away, who you've probably never met, actually. But you've heard they're in need, and you want to address those needs. And it's very interesting there in verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 8, he quotes, well, what does he quote? The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. He's quoting from Exodus, and God's provision of the manna for his people. And this idea that for everyone there was enough for every day. And what God is saying is that amongst the Christian families across the world, that there is enough between us to ensure that everyone has got enough for every day. But actually we need to be sharing it out. We need to recognise our wealth and to, to see where there are those in need to, and to share it with them. We have this responsibility then to share out of our material wealth with fellow believers around the world who find themselves in poverty. Now this is not straightforward. It is really complex. Where do you start? How do you actually give in such a way that it's going to help? There are all sorts of minefields around this area and there are all sorts of concerns and we could almost do with another dozen sermons to, to pack, unpack all the wisdom on how we do this wisely. But the reality is that we could spend a, a lifetime working this out and still not get it completely right. But actually, the principle is clear, and that the, the heart's desire is clear. We want to share the good things that we have with others who are in need. Paul in one Timothy six says, "We brought nothing into the world; we can take nothing out of it. But if we've got food and clothing, we'll be content with that." There's the benchmark. There's there, there's the baseline. If you've got food and clothes, that's all you need. And if you've got food and clothes and you're all dressed and I suspect you've probably all eaten very well today, actually we've got everything we need. And so everything else can be shared, is what Paul is saying once in one Because there's lots of people in this world today who haven't got clothing and they haven't eaten today. And perhaps haven't got a prospect of eating tomorrow. So in a sense, once you've got the baseline covered, food and clothes, start sharing now, who with and how, you've got to work out. You've got to use your mind. You've got to think about that. You've got to pray about that. But that should be our heart. Now, I have to say, I've been really exercised by this, preparing this series of sermons. I grew up in a family which which tithed. And so I just adopted that practice. That's what my parents did. I, I've always done that. I've always tithed my income. But the kind of thinking is, I've given the tithe, and then the rest has got to cover everything else. And it just kind of goes in and out. I'm not very good budgeting, and you know, money seems to go out and come in every every month, and we're just about breaking even. And I'm not thinking about that because I've, I've given the tithe. But, but actually, I don't. I don't think that's that's the New Testament emphasis. There's this thoughtfulness about what do I really need, and then how much can I give away? Not I've done the tithe bit, and I'm all right. I was, really, I was preaching on Zacchaeus as part of this series. I'm really struck by Zacchaeus. So when Jesus says, I'm coming to your house to tea, Zacchaeus is so overwhelmed by God's love. How does he respond? Lord, I'll try and be more generous in the future. No, it's not kind of vague, is he? I'm going to give away half of my wealth. And everyone I've cheated, I'm going to give four times as much always dream of the Inland Revenue Samuel to say we've made a mistake and here's four times as much as we've yeah. taken off you. That, that would just be a real show. But that's, that's like he is. But he's, he's intentional about it. He's thought about it. He's clearly very quickly worked out what do I really need? The rest can go. And I think, you know, we've tried to live a generous life. In principle, our home is not our own. We're happy to have people around. We, we, we regularly have people around our table. But I think I've squandered so much wealth over the years. Because I've not been thoughtful and intentional. And I'm not sure my generosity has always gone to the most needed. There's been very little deliberate attempt, perhaps, to target the poorest. And I really, I think I've got a lot to learn. But there's a, there's a simplicity in terms of the impact of the gospel on an individual life. I love Ephesians 4, verse 28. Paul is writing to the Ephesian Christians and he says, Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer. You tell him, Paul. Fancy stealing, that's a terrible thing to do. Tell them to stop. But they must work, doing something useful with their own hands. You tell them, Paul, we don't want any of these idle scroungers around, you know. You tell them to work, Paul. That they may have something to share with those in need. Hang on, Paul, hang on. Hang on, I've I've earned my crust. What's Paul saying? Actually, the ideal is for everybody to be working, to earn, to, to acquire. Not just for myself, but actually to share with others. That, that's healthy Christian life. That's the dispar- difference the gospel should make for all of us. The aim is equality. Within the fellowship, there was no needy person. Paul says that to the Corinthians, I want you to give to the Jewish Christians so that, not so that you become poor while they become wealthy, but actually we share the good things so that everybody has an Now, we live in a society that's obsessed with equality. But I think actually it's a very selfish equality. I'm a minority, I want my slice of the pie. Not, you're a minority, and I hope you'll be looked after. I I don't hear that voice, it's kind of championing my cause. But but actually, the Bible is teaching us that there ought to be equality amongst God's people, a sharing of the good things. And and so I've been really struck by the, the sentence, we should seek to live simply, to let others simply live. And I don't think we live very simply in our world today in the west it's very easy for us isn't it to look at others who've got more than us and think they're rich we're not the reality is we're in we're in the top small percentage of the world people on this planet in terms of wealth we have so so much and can we live more simply to help others simply live so we have a generous god who loves to give good things to his people uh, he set Jubilee at the heart of the Old Testament to make sure that everyone had a share, but the hearts of the wicked hearts of his own people meant that judgment came because they weren't going to share it out. What hope is there for us? what well, Jesus Christ left his riches in glory and entered our poverty to make us rich. And we if we're Christians need to be like him otherwise we're not his. And what happens then is the gospel changes his people, the aim is equality. We want to share the good things out amongst us. But let me finish with this, the end is co-heirs of the inheritance. You see, it's very easy to look at living a generous life and feeling as though we're missing out. If the baseline is clothes and food, that top mark car I've had my eye on, which has got all those extra bits, which would be really nice, do I really need that? Actually, could I miss out on that and have a lower model and give the extra to those who haven't got anything? Am I really missing out now? As a young person, can I buy the, the non-label clothes? Because actually all I need is clothes. I don't need the really expensive stuff. And, but then am I going to miss out and I'm going to be out of, the, out of the crowd and, and really picked on and, and, and laughed at and mocked? And Actually, am I, am I going to really miss out by living simply? Well, the good and generous God who made a good world with many good things for us to enjoy, who then sent his son who embraced our poverty to make us rich, is one day going to come back. And take all those who are following his son in generosity to a new heavens and a new earth where they are going to be co-heirs of everything. Mm -hmm. Are we going to have missed out? Are we going to have lost out for living simply? Absolutely not. Romans 8 verse 17. Now if we're children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. I don't know if you've ever had that fantasy of some rich relative kind of dying. That you didn't know you had, and then the cheque coming through the posting for a million pounds. Oh, what a wonderful, what a wonderful occurrence! You know, I'm an heir. Wow. Well, frankly, you are an heir and with a better inheritance than even, even that. You know, you're, you're a, you're a co heir with Jesus, you're a child of God. But how does Romans 8, verse 17 finish? If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. Actually, following Christ calls us to a life of suffering. calls us to a life of actually uh, giving up some of the pleasures and privileges because we want to share them with others out of generosity. And we're going to reign as co-heirs with Christ. Let me just read 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5. I think these, these verses are just so wonderful. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Here's something that we're going to inherit that cannot lose its value, cannot fade, cannot perish, cannot spoil. And then he goes on to say, that inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So this everlasting inheritance that that can't lose its value or, or be lost is being kept safe for you. My 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 wife's parents had a pension, and they lost in one of the economic crashes. I think twenty, thirty years ago now, all their pension went. The, the fund it was in went belly up, and they've lived off state pension. You know, all their through, through their retirements, they lost everything. They they invested wisely, it seemed. You know, trying to save for the future, and it's all gone. Peter is saying, "We've got this investment for the future, and it cannot be lost. It's not going to rust or corrupt or fade, and it's being kept in heaven for you." But then he goes on to say, you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only is the inheritance being kept safe, but you're being kept safe, so you'll get the inheritance. You know, there, there are lots of tales about men who have worked really hard, really sort of driven themselves to, to earn and acquire so they can retire early. And and they've put all their effort into that, and, and they get to the day of their retirement, they've got a really nice Fun stacked up and they're looking forward to being on the golf course and living in the big house and driving the fast cars and they die a week after retirement. The inheritance looked good and safe, but they didn't make it to enjoy it. Peter is saying our inheritance is absolutely rock-solid, safe in glory. And we're going to get there. We are absolutely guaranteed to enjoy it. That's just staggering, isn't it? I just love those verses. <laughs> Folks, we are not going to lose out by living simply. We're not going to lose out for being generous. I know it doesn't make any sense in our society at all that giving away makes you richer. Because that's completely the antith- antithesis of, of the way we live as our society. It's all about getting more for me. But the call to follow Jesus is to give away to get richer. Just, uh, just listen to, I think, some very striking verses in Colossians 3. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Jesus Christ your servant. Paul is writing to people who are slaves. They're in a really horrible position in society and he's saying, "Do, do it gladly. Because what you've got coming is far greater than anything you're missing out on now. Now, You'd never hear that message preached today, would you? We, we, we want to free the slaves. You know, why didn't Paul tell people to free the slaves? He's, he's missing out. Well, Paul says, I've got an eye on a better price. Yeah, freeing slaves is a good thing. We, we, we want to be generous and, and helpful. But actually, you, you are stuck in that situation. You know, actually, keep your eye on, on something far more wonderful. Don't spend all your life trying to free yourself from something that, in the long term, is, is just going to be far less wonderful than what's coming. Now the reality is there's not going to be true equality in this world. Because sin still remains. Even as those who are following the Lord Jesus Christ, their hearts are not uh, what they should be. (coughs) But one day, one day when Jesus comes again, there is going to be equality as we are co-heirs with God for all eternity. We are going to delight in each other's well-being. No one's going to be sitting in glory and saying, You've got six foot more square yardage in your garden than I have. No, we're just going to be rejoicing in God's overwhelming grace. What am I doing here? How did I end up here? This is amazing. God's loved me so much. And you're here as well. That's equally shocking. And, and, and hasn't God been good to us? And Oh, wow. So let me conclude with the wisdom of Proverbs. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Mm -hmm. Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. And I think all of us are on the side of the danger of having too much and disowning the Lord. And what's the solution? Be generous with it. Trust in him for your daily bread and enjoy him. Let's pray.